Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Walter Nagel. Walter was the partner of the American civil rights leader, Bayard Rustin and is executive director of the Bayard Reston Fund, which commemorates Reston's life, values, and legacy. Walter's commitment to civil rights began long before he met Reston. During high school in the 1960s, he became interested in the African-American struggle for civil rights and social justice, particularly with his commitment to nonviolence as a means to bring about democratic change. After attending university for one year, he left to join VISTA for Volunteers in Service to America and worked for a year in the Hilliard Houses Senior Center, an agency of Hall House Association in Chicago. As his interest in nonviolence and pacifism grew, he decided to confront the selective service system. Writing a letter to his draft board stating that he could not cooperate with a selective service and would refuse induction. He was immediately summoned to report for induction, did not appear, but was never indicted. Walter met Bayard Reston in April of 1977. They were on the same corner, waiting for the light to change. After a few months, the two became steady partners. He moved in with Reston, who resided in the mutual redevelopment houses Penn South. Because same-sex marriage was illegal at the time, Reston legally adopted Nagel in 1982. The two were together for 10 years until Reston's death in 1987. On November 20th, 2013, Nagel accepted the Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama in honor of Reston's work on the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom. He and Sally Ride's partner, Tam O'Shaughnessy, were the first LGBTQ partners to accept the award for their late partners. Nagel has spoken truth to power his entire life, modeling nonviolence as a way of life, advocating for prisoners and GR rights, and co-authoring many important books about the civil rights struggle. He recently joined the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice as community liaison. The center provides a safe haven and an educational enclave for LGBTQ youth and the entire community. Walter, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I am well, thank you. It's a lovely day here in New York City. 
Ah, New York. I love New York. You know, I mean, and it must have a lot of fond memories. I mean, I always love a good love story. And um, I was reading about in Tyson, you're crossing the park, and there was someone who just, like, caught your eye and, you know, that shock of right hair, and the rest was, was history. Are you a romantic? Oh, I think, yeah. I think I am to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Not overly so, but, yeah. Uh-huh. It, it put, like, a humanity to, to it that, you know, not only the LGBTQ community, because we get struck by lightning, you know, by, the, by Cupid's arrows just like anybody else. But, you know, it, it makes it a human story. I mean, because often I don't know what people think about gay people, you know. They, they just have these ideals about us and, you know, like somehow we're at the club and we're dancing going, ooh, ooh, and we hook up from there, you know. But that's such a real story. Um, do you often, like when you're talking to other young gay people, do they ever ask, you know, about that and about your feelings, particularly at that time, because now, you know, we're here, we're queer, we're everywhere. But back then, you know, being out and being queer and being able to express your love wasn't as free as it is today. Well, that's very true. Uh, Things were pretty much under wraps for a lot of people at that time, although, you know, we're talking about eight years after Stonewall, so things had started loosening up, especially here in New York City. And, uh, you know, Bard was somebody who was never particularly quiet about who he was, who wasn't in the mm-hmm. closet. And I was I was the same way. I mean, we were both fairly, um, I would say, uh, reserved in the way we express ourselves, at least I, I, I am. But you know we weren't going to we weren't going to be untrue to our to our identities or to be somebody trying mm-hmm. to be somebody that we weren't. Um, and I think you know things have opened up a lot in the last you know thirty thirty five years, forty years since Stonewall, almost fifty this year. Um, so the young people now don't have the same kinds of uh, restrictions, and I, and they're not they're not really burdened by the same kinds of stereotypes that people had back in the, in the 50s and 60s about gay people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're all over the place. You know, not all of us went to bars. Not all of us, uh, you know, danced to disco, or not all of us uh, were into, to, into the same kind of scene. And so there was, you know, a tremendous range of diversity in the gay community, just as there is in every community. And it's nice that that can be reflected nowadays. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that, that, you know, how they say there's no coincidences, but you were involved in and, and had a commitment to civil rights, like, long before in high school. Um, I'm from Detroit. I can recall when the riots, um, well, rebellion broke out here, and being at home and seeing people, you know, right across the street from us, we had um, military. And there was this conversation going on about civil rights. And there was the Malcolm camp and the Martin camp. You were inspired by the African-American struggle for social justice, but also the commitment to nonviolence. Mm-hmm. What was it? Was there anything in particular that, that pulled you to that? Or was it just hearing the message? Well, it was, 
I would say partly my own background. I was somewhat of a religious kid, Roman Catholic, Mm. and, um, you know, I was raised on, um, you know, the Golden Rule and um, the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, learning, you know, Mm -hmm. loving your enemies, not hating the people that are against you, that kind of thing. And um, that was much more reflected in the Dr. King side and the integrationist side of the movement than it was in other branches of the movement, such as the, you know, the Malcolm X or the separatist movement, or some of the people that, you know, were convinced that violence was the only way to, to go. And since I was seeing this on the television when I got home from school at night on the newscasts and reading about it in the papers, you know, it was really uh, inspiring to see, you know, words and things that you had been taught or you believed in actually being practiced, you know, before your very mm-hmm. eyes at the time. So uh, I found that very, very inspiring. You know, it's interesting because I grew up in Catholic school. And, you know, and, and like you said, there are things that you were taught and that you, you know, I believe, I, I still believe, but not so much I was uninspired by what was happening in the church and then to see it, it happening out there in the street and to see the courage of people where, you know, we would watch it on television and you'd see people being, you know, um, having water cannons, having dogs put on them. I grew up in Michigan. My mother was born in Michigan. So that whole Southern segregation was something that we didn't see. You know, I didn't have experience firsthand, but we Mm -hmm. saw prejudice and racism from a different view in the north oh yes you know you know absolutely and i think uh uh you know i think the the uh message of malcolm x i think that that was a message that resonated much more with people in the north and particularly in the urban areas because like you said they didn't have to contend with the legal de jure segregation that they had to in the South, but they still uh, were suffering from bad education, bad health care, bad schools, um, mm-hmm. you know, poverty in the neighborhoods. And so his message, I think, uh, was resonated much more with the northern urban African-American community, whereas Dr. King's message, you know, was one that resonated in the South. Because mm-hmm. it was interesting. That was the... And I, actually, that was a, a point of contention with my family because, hey, I was, you know, fight the power, let's do this. And my mm-hmm. my parents were more, you know, listening to what King said and talking this. And I think that there was that 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 sense of urgency to, to to wanting to do something to change it. You were also about the time of the draft, and you know, and you did something. You wrote a letter and you said. I'm not going to do this. What was your family's background, and, and how did they they take to, you know, I mean, Catholic school is like, you know, you're good. You know, you, you be good and you don't say it. I mean, I can recall many a time, you know, because as I was taking more radical that my parents get caught up and Mother Superior or Father would say, you know, this is not how we do it. What was your family's take on the direction that you were going, you know, you mm-hmm. were still being nonviolent, but you were fighting the power. Well, I think for one thing, and based on what you've said, 
um, you can certainly relate to this. You know, young people tend to be certainly much more impatient. They haven't lived as long. They haven't seen the history and what change has happened over time because they just haven't been around that long. And so they tend to be, you know, feisty, um, impatient, radical to a certain degree, you could say. And, and Bart was the same way when he was, when he was a young man. He was mm-hmm. more radical than he was as he got older. Um, you know, having said that, um, my, my family, I think my family would have preferred that I not acted acted out the way that I did. I mean, at that time, you know, you could one could get a student deferment, one could get an, you know, and I, you know, I could have declared myself as gay and been exempted from mm. the draft on that basis. But I felt it was, I just felt that war was wrong. Mm. And I felt, and I also felt that, you know, there's no reason why, you know, poor kids who maybe can't go to college or have the same options that young, uh, especially young white kids had, uh, you know, to avoid confronting or facing the draft. You know, why should they? Why should they have to carry that burden? You know, if 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 people need to fight, then we should all be approached equally. And so I felt, you know, it was an unjust system to begin with. Um, but you know, opposing it on the basis of conscience and on the basis of being against war was the route that I that I took. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I think my my family would have preferred that I had not been uh, so confrontational about it that I, you know, would have taken a student deferment or you know, gotten out as a four F as a gay man. But I just didn't feel that that was right for me. So um, they understood, you know. I mean, they didn't condemn me for it or anything else. Um, but uh, you know, it was a, it was a tough time. I was living under the. A uh, shadow of possible incarceration for several years there in the late sixties, mm. early seventies. Now, and you were already out as a gay man. Um, in the early seventies, yeah. yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, I mm, think okay. you know my 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 certain members of my family I think kind of knew or suspected, but I would say probably when I was about twenty in nineteen seventy. Uh, I took my first boyfriend home, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would say I was wow. about twenty or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, and we we think that, and you know, you forget about. I mean, there was that. I was talking to a guy from Canada, and we were talking about what had happened to him about the same time, and he was saying how well he went in, and he just wanted to serve his country. And um, someone leaked that he was gay, and they went through all of these things to get him to come out. Where here, you know, you could have used that, but mm-hmm. you want what your conscience was. And, you know, I mean, and it says so much about our community that we're not using it for special, you know, people say, oh, they want special privileges. No. You, you've dealt with it as on a human basis that you were against the war, you didn't feel that the draft was fair. And I think that that's a really important message that people might not understand that, you know, yeah, the easy way what would have been to, to go in and said, hey, well, you know, I'm gay, you know, you don't want me, but you didn't mm-hmm. take the easy route. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I could have gone to Canada. A lot of people went to Canada, mm-hmm. too. 
Um, uh-huh. But I just felt that that just wasn't for me. <laughs> wasn't uh-huh. uh, I wasn't I wouldn't have been true to myself if I had done uh-huh. those other those other things. Hmm. So, but you did believe in service. And you you joined the Volunteers and Service to America. Mm-hmm. And how did that come about? Well, I, w- I was in college that first year after high school. Mm-hmm. So we we're talking the fall of 67 into May and June of 68. And, you know, I had, I had always been a very good student. I was, you know, good academically. Uh, and, I you know, I wanted to further my education. But that year was very tumultuous. There was a lot going on. You, you know, you had the war, you had the civil rights movement, which, of course, you know, was starting to change direction in some ways uh, at that time. And, of course, in the spring, you had the assassinations, both of uh, Dr. King and then Bobby Kennedy. And so mm-hmm. it was a very, very tumultuous time. And I kind of felt, you know, here I am sitting, um, sitting in school, kind of on the sidelines, and I, I should take some time and, and, you know, go out and do something a little more... Uh, well, a little, you know, in the public, in the public interest and in public service, that kind of thing. You know, if I wasn't going to go into the military, then maybe I should be doing something else to, uh, you know, better the community. So when I heard about this, then I met somebody at school who had been a volunteer. Uh, we uh-huh. talked about it, and I thought, well, it's, you know, let me try it out. So yeah, did you ever think about going south to participate in any of the marches or the sit-ins or the protests? No, I didn't because um, when those were re- when those things were going on, that was really in you know it's the, I would say the early to mid '60s, '60 you know maybe '66, '67, and I was you know I was a kid. I was in high school. I was in grammar school, middle school, high school during that period, um, mm-hmm. and by the time. You know, I finished high school. Again, the the movement was kind of changing direction. Those kinds of marches and things weren't really happening. What was happening were a lot of anti-Vietnam protests, and I Mm -hmm. did participate in some of those. I was, you know, marching in some of those. Mm -hmm. Had I been, you know, five to ten years older than I am, Mm -hmm. I I could might might very well have joined the the African American struggle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, because you know that's. I mean, those are things that you you remember. I remember hearing about people like Viola Liuzzo who went down there and then she was, and it was like, you know, why would anybody go down there? But, but it was sort of like, like you said, it was that part where I was sitting, it was too soon for me to, to go and do anything, but you're taking it in and it's forming your thoughts and you did it. Now you were on this path, you know, you had this commitment to nonviolence, to, struggling and fighting for civil rights, but you were also at a point in time, because you talked about like the 50-year anniversary of Stonewall, you're in, you know, you you had come out and you were starting to see it. Did you equate LGBT rights or civil rights from the beginning, or were you like said, well, you know, let's get civil rights and hopefully we will be included in that? Uh, I, I don't, it didn't really occur to me or I don't I don't think I really made the direct connection that early on it was sort mm-hmm. of like another another step you know in in freedom struggles but sort of its own I mean you had you know you had the African-American struggle and you know the, the women's movement 
was taking off, and then you had the LGBT movement, and they all kind of seemed to have their own place. But the, you know, when you think about it, I mean, civil, you know, civil rights—the the very word themselves—it's it has to do with the rights that you have under law, under the law of the country mm-hmm. you live in. Not the same thing as human rights, which are universal. Civil rights have to do with laws, and if we're all living in the same country and we're governed by the same constitution, then we should all have those same rights. And um, so when people talk, you know, sometimes you hear people disparaging the LGBT movement saying, oh, well, you know, you're stealing, you know, Mm -hmm. you're stealing the African-American struggle or it's not the same thing or this or that. Well, you know, there are some differences, but the basic thrust is, you know, we want our rights as Americans. We don't want to be second class citizens and we're going to stand up for those rights. So it seems like, you know, you are on a trajectory. Um, you are on a trajectory to where it made sense that your payoff would cross with your with your husband. I mean, and then you didn't have marriage. I mean, which is, which is the other part that's so amazing is, like, he had to adopt you because we didn't have marriage. I mean, you know, I mean, which is just, like, to realize that there were times that that really occurred. But you were on a trajectory. You both had this about civil rights, you both have uh, pacifism. Did you recognize who this was, and did you have conversations about it? And how was your view? Okay, there's one thing to all, I think we can all agree about civil rights, but there's also a different perspective when one, when part of you is black and part of one other partner is not. Did, how did that influence your conversations well as you know Bard was considerably older than I was he was 37 years older than me so you know we had we also had the generational difference Mm -hmm. too but he was somebody he was raised in a community that was black and white and a lot of his friends when he was growing up uh were white. He went to, even though he went to a segregated elementary school, his high school was integrated. And so he had friends, you know, he had black friends and he had white friends. Um, so he, he was never really hung up on the issue of race per se. And now I, I had a very different upbringing. My, the community that I grew up in was, was, was all white. Uh, there was a community not too far away where there was a significant percentage of, of African Americans, but in terms of my day-to-day life and my schooling and things like that, you know, I was pretty much surrounded by white folks. Um, but again, I was I was seeing the African American struggle played out on the you know in the news and the television. So you know, my consciousness about African Americans was was raised, you know, mm-hmm. by reading and by by seeing. Um, we didn't really struggle between the two of us. We really didn't struggle over racial stuff. Um, we live in New York City. It's a pretty free and open place here, you know, not only for interracial couples, but also for gay couples. So mm-hmm. we, didn't, we didn't face the kind of prejudice uh, and reactions we would have faced had we been out in the Midwest or had we lived in the South, for example. They're just, you know, New Yorkers are pretty much live and let live. And mm-hmm. so uh, we, I would say that we had a relatively easy time. Um, I did know who Byard was just because of my knowledge of 
of civil of the civil rights movement. I had read about him, um, but at the moment that I met him, I, I, it wasn't clear to me until you know he introduced himself. He said, "Oh, hello, I'm Bayard Rustin." So you know, then I, I of course I made the connection. Um, but uh, you know, I knew his history, and that's part of why we were able to make, uh, you know, a lasting relationship because we we shared a set of values. We had an interest in uh, making change through nonviolent means, and we had a shared interest in the belief in the in the oneness of all people and the oneness of humanity, on um, you know, not engaging in violence against other people. So you know, we shared those we shared those values. Now, you know, you talked about the 37-year age difference. And, you know, often, and in our community, you know, I hear this age gap. You know, I I hear, like, older LGBTQ members saying, oh, we can't work with the millennials. The millennials say that, you know, oh, they don't hear it. And sometimes you find people who have found ways where get, like, what you two, you two had, the same values, the same beliefs, and you are able to to coordinate that. Do you find that having lived that, that when you hear these generational conflicts or challenges coming within our community, that you're able to give a perspective to it so that, you know, the millennial isn't looking like at the elder going like, you don't know anything, and the elder is going like, you don't know your history. And that, you know, that, that we can come together over our shared values to move our community forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things about Bard was he always maintained a very open and I think a very a youthful spirit in that sense. Um, he was always curious about other people's ideas, uh, and that made him actually attractive to a lot of young people. Uh, you know, if you know the history, a lot of the young people who uh-huh. went on to do other things, people like Stokely Carmichael, uh, John uh-huh. Lewis, Eleanor Holmes Norton, uh, they found Bart to be an attractive guy because he was more radical than the mainstream civil rights leaders. He didn't have an organization of his own at the time that they they worked with him. He was kind of this outside um, freelance sort of agitator. And they found that attractive. And, and, and you know, it's not just... And, and part of it is because because of this openness. I mean, at the, we're talking about a time when he was in his late 40s, early 50s, so he was no kid himself. But he had this ability to listen to people and to be open to new ideas and not to pretend that he had all the answers or knew everything just because he was older or just because he had been through certain experiences. Um, you know, he was, he was always, he was there, he was there to listen to people. And I think that's the kind of lesson that when you're talking about bridging the generation gap, if you will, and that was the term that they used when you and I were growing up, um, it's really about being, you know, not closing, not closing your mind and not closing off and being rigid about your way being the only way, uh, you know, but being open to hear new ideas and to listen to people's perspective. And I think that's, you know, listening is really probably the most important element in that, you know, in that whole interaction, being willing to listen and uh, pay attention and 
you know, hear other people's stories because we don't all have the same stories. We haven't all been through the same struggles. And then you can perhaps find common ground to move forward, um, hopefully, depending, you mm-hmm. know, depending on the issue. Uh, I think where, where, um, where Bayard came out and where there might have been some, and there were differences between him and some of the other people in the movement was that, you know, he believed that despite what your objective was, you had to go about it nonviolently. So if you're someone that doesn't believe in nonviolence or believes that, you know, you got to pick up a gun, uh, you know, to, to get to accomplish your goals, then, you know, you're going to be breaking off there with, with, with him. Um, and me to a certain degree, of course, mm-hmm. but, uh, but, you know, again, it, it, it's really about listening because even people who were not necessarily, there were a lot of people in the African-American struggle who weren't committed to nonviolence, certainly the way Dr. King was. You know, he embraced it as a, as a way of life. There were a lot of people that just saw it as a tactic, as a way of getting, getting what you wanted to, to achieve. Um, whereas Dr. King, he may have started out that way, but he went on to embrace it, uh, you know, throughout his whole being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just don't see that. And as you're out and you're about and people will come to you, that's a really important message, you know, that I'm hoping that, that people address to you and that you're able to share with it. Because sometimes, like I said, I hear people who are in, quote, unquote, leadership positions, and it's sort of like, then they're missing that, that being open, that listening. And, you know, and, and like I said, you'll hear different groups, and they'll say they come to the table, but they might have a seat, but nobody's listening to it. And it seems now more than ever, we need all the minds, all the ideals, all the creativity, you know, all the experiences to come mm-hmm. together to keep moving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think we're living in very, very present times, very divided times. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, one way to, to try and overcome that and to bridge those gaps is to, you know, have patience and to, to listen and um, try and find the common ground that you share and not just kind of go off in your own particular group and not want to work with other people. Because we really, you know, we're we're in a multicultural society we're all uh, to a certain degree we're all members of minority groups and we're not going to be able to get things done on our own so if we if we can unite around certain ideas certain principles and certain programs sometimes then we can we can uh, create a a democratic majority small d democratic i would say there uh-huh. a majority to get something done but if we all remain in our own little factions and we're all divided um we're not going to get very far. Mm-hmm. Well, Walter, we're going to take our first break here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. 
For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And if you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Walter Nagel. He is a civil rights activist and in his own right. Many, Walter, I'm sure, you know, like the first thing that they want to say is like, you know, they identify you to your partner, um, but you have your, your own path which you were already on, but you're also trying to maintain, and, and you know, you're the executive director of the, the Bayard Weston Fund, and you're commemorating his life's value and legacy. How are you doing more than just like, you know, well, here's the story again, you know, he did this, but also how are you, you making it a living legacy evolved and since his death in part because of your influence on this legacy? Well, I think we've come a long way since he died. Mm-hmm. He died in 1987. And we were, we were really set up to be fairly modest in what we wanted to accomplish. Um, a lot of people didn't know who Bayard was at that time unless they were you know, members of the same movements that he was. And we thought that it was important to try and get him in the history books and to get his name out there and to get some, some recognition because we, we um, myself and some of his friends and co-workers, felt that it was important. You know, his message was important. And to get that message out through the vehicle of this man who had, you know, organized the 63 March, which was probably mm-hmm. his most visible achievement, you know, was a way to get this message out there. Uh, we didn't want to create we didn't want to create an iconic figure or a saint, if you will. Uh-huh. Um, we wanted to have people look at Bard and find him as an inspiration and someone whose values they could um, model their own life after and get in, you know get involved in in promoting change. So we were interested, you know, both in the commemoration aspect of it, but also in furthering and promoting his ideas and his values, especially to to younger generations of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did that. We had a, a fellowship program for a number of years where we placed young people in organizations uh, carrying out the work in different areas, civil rights, human rights, peace, refugee affairs, um, the kind of work that uh, Bard was doing, and at the mm-hmm. time we did that, there weren't you know there weren't a lot of opportunities. It wasn't the same as it was when I was when I was in my first years of, of college. There were a lot of opportunities out there, and it wasn't so difficult getting a job. And uh, in the early, in the late eighties, early nineties, young people were getting out of school, and they were either saddled with debt or they felt they had to go to work right away. And of course, a lot of the nonprofits may not have had the budget to hire a young staffer. So this was a way to kind of get people some work experience, get them involved in some of these issues, uh, 
and hopefully, you know, put them on a path so that it's something they would continue with, uh, as, you know, in their in their work life. And some, you know, some of them did. Um, so we were doing that. We were also, you know, working with people who were writing biographies about him, uh, consulting, giving them access to materials, uh, directing them to people that they would probably want to talk to, and, and collections where Bard's uh, materials and papers and things like that existed in various university libraries. Um, so it was, it was, I guess you could say, it was sort of like a multi, multi-pronged approach to uh, not only getting him out there in terms of his name, but um, getting his ideas, you know, carried forward. Uh, you know, like you said, so much has changed. You know, marriage wasn't legal. Uh, you had to, I mean, how did, from that, did you ever, when you saw that happening, and, and I think that even like the whole struggle and challenges and votes moving up to the Supreme Court decision, were you just like sort of blown away? And what was your perspective on it? You know, we talked to young people, you know, and, and it's just amazing because, but I do love to talk to people and I like to hear what they say. And um, there is an organization here and they were talking like about, you know, well, now they can get married and, you know, and the challenges that they were having. And it was almost like, in fact, one a lesbian couple came and said, you know, you don't know what we had to do in order to maintain our relationships. And they were like, well, nobody talks about it. So, you know, they are looking at their lives here. As you saw that coming, I mean, and actually in some ways marriage wasn't initially our fight. We were fighting for so many other rights, but then marriage became front and center. But as you saw that and you went back and you looked at, the things that you weren't able to have because you weren't able to get married. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, how did that impact you? Well, I think um, when the actual, uh, you know, Supreme Court decision came through, um, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it was, it was a, it was a tremendous victory. Um, I came, you know, I came from a generation of people who were sort of rejecting marriage um, mm-hmm. You know, people were kind of living together without getting married. Um, but even if you know, even if you were doing that and you were straight, sooner or later they you were, became what they call common law spouses. So you were entitled to certain rights, even if you weren't didn't have the benefit of marriage. That wasn't open to gay people at all. And so you know, a lot of us suffered through the indignities of. Um, you know, not being able to be with our partners when they were ill, you know, the, these quote-unquote family would step in and you would be kind of cast aside, uh, you know, not being able to inherit uh, whatever our partners wanted to leave to us. Uh, you know, those, those, those avenues just weren't available. And I don't think I understood, I can't speak for other people, I don't think I really understood the impact of all of that until I was older, you know, uh-huh. until... Um, I certainly would have, uh, you know, had Bayard not adopted me, um, you know, I wouldn't have really had any legal standing, any rights. Uh, even, you know, I was mentioned in his will, but that will could have been challenged since uh, I wasn't technically a bud relative. 
but the fact that he adopted me uh, gave me some legal legal standing um, to execute his will as the way he wanted it executed. So I th- again, I think you know this is one of those things that you start to understand as you get a little bit older and you have some perspective about you know all the rights and privileges that we just kind of take for granted in a society. Well, they can be taken away. You know, the, the, the government can uh, grant certain rights and they can take away certain rights. And so the fact that we've achieved, you know, we have marriage legalized doesn't mean that it, it, uh, it hopefully it couldn't be turned over, but it doesn't mean that there are not people that are resisting the idea and doing everything they can to kind of try to circumvent some of the rights and uh, privileges that we have now. So it's, you know, I think it's, it's, we just need to keep that in mind that it's, the struggle is never really ultimately won or over. You, you have to be vigilant. Do you think, would you, okay, would you have gotten married if, if marriage was legal? I think we probably would have. Despite mm-hmm. what I said before about coming from a generation of, people that rejected that the fact that we were the the fact that of our age difference you know i think we assumed that if we were going to live out our natural lives bard was going to die you know considerable amount of time before i did now you know that wasn't always an assumption you could make especially during that time we were together because that's when aids hit and there were an awful Mm -hmm. lot of young people Mm -hmm. dying um so it wasn't a guarantee but um you know, the way it worked out, you know, he did, you know, he died, consider, you know, 30, you know, years before, before I did, uh, or mm-hmm. I haven't, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that uh, we probably would have tied the knot, if you, if you will, if we, if we could mm-hmm. have, just to, you know, to, to provide some legal protection for me, and for him too, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, he wanted his partner to, um, be able to make decisions for him were he incapacitated uh were he taken ill he wanted his partner to be able to uh make decisions for him about you know what kind of care he should receive or what kind of procedures he would want to have or not have and so you know it was important to have a basis for for exercising those rights and for yeah. us it was the, it was adoption mm-hmm. because the marriage wasn't mm-hmm. the option Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting because, like, yesterday I was speaking with someone, like I said, who's in Canada, who is Canadian. And, you know, they have so many, Canada leads in so many ways of, of LGBT rights. And um, so we were talking about, you know, how they, they you, I knew people who went to Canada to get married when we couldn't get married here. And he said that, you know, he fought for marriage, he believed in marriage, but he wasn't married and his partner had no reason to get married because they, they had ways that they felt that they were protected under so many different ways. And I know a lot of it has to do with the way that the legal or legislative system is set up in Canada to where they did that, but it was sort of like, I said, but we don't have that. And, and it was interesting that he was saying, like, he has never had a problem in Canada 
taking care of his partner, anything. The only time that he had a problem was one time they were coming to the United States to visit. And this was recently, and someone said, well, you're not married, so you can't, you, you know, they had to come in as two separate people. And it was like, hmm. And he was saying that that was the ultimate thing. Like, there's nothing that said that two heterosexual people just had to be married to benefit from all of these, but here we still have it, or, or it can be stripped from us. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that was like, it was just like, gave me a moment of pause to think, because I figured, you know, Canada, oh, hey, you know, everybody's married. But it was like, no, you know, it was still their choice not to, you know, mm-hmm. and hoping that one day here that we would feel so protected that we wouldn't have to go to these, you know, we wouldn't have to have that just to be, you know, sure and safe. You know, mm-hmm. do you, you know, you've gone from to where you had to be adopted. Then you've seen where marriage is allowed. Now we see it looks like so many of our rights are under attack. I mean, you, we are worried about it. I mean, you see what has happened with the trans ban. You see now this thing where a doctor can say they don't want to take care of you because you're LGBTQ. Do you, do you really, what do you feel we need to be doing? I mean, you know, I mean, as you've looked at through where you've seen from where we were to where we've come, what do we need to be saying to not only our community, but our allies to not turn back the hands of time? Well, we, well, we need to ask them to stand with us. Certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to, educate younger people, the younger generation. And I think, you know, to a large degree, that's being, that's being done, at least in certain parts of the country. Uh, and I think, you know, when, when people grow up and they have, uh, you know, LGBT friends or they have a relative who's there and comes to family gatherings and things with their partner, you know, it just becomes part, it becomes, um, part of the usual for them. You know, it's not anything to be uh, afraid of, or it's not anything to be, uh, you know, un- to, to to disagree with. It's just a matter of, well, you know, there you have all kinds of people in the world, and some of them are LGBT, um, mm-hmm. and so I think a certain amount of the work is 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 being done just by people being visible and being out there and being honest about who they are. Um, but you know, you do have parts of the country certainly where that's not the where that's it's harder to be open about who you are. Mm-hmm. And there is more, uh, I would say, you know, disdain and rejection on the part of family members, uh, certainly on the part of religious institutions. Um, so, you know, we, we need to, to, re- to try and resist that. And a lot, of, you know, a certain amount of that is really just through education, you know, not getting into a, uh, you know, a loud... Um, screaming argument about some about this with someone, but just, you know, quietly educating people about about the facts and about the reality of, of LGBT existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and taking it, you know, keeping it in the public uh, arena, keeping it in the civic forum. You know, if if somebody wants to be religious and they and they believe that, you know, however they want to believe about LGBT people, you know, well that's their right. You know, you don't have to let me into your church if you don't want to. Um, but you know, don't 
try and interfere with my right to vote or my right to marry or you know any of my any of the other rights that are granted to me mm-hmm. under, under the civil law mm-hmm. I mean, it is. it's just like it's just like I'm a, you know and and you stop like you said everything we need our allies you know not just the one to say like oh well I love you Uncle Walter but when they're at work who sit quietly and don't say something, that we need our allies, too, to start to say, you know, a member of my family is, what you're saying isn't right. And like you said, we need people to be more vocal and to come out and to talk about it. You know, I listen to you, and I hear so much in what you do. And one of the other things that that you were able to do, and I have a friend who, I don't know if you know Dr. Wilhelmina Perry. She lives in New York. Her partner in 1996 received the Presidential Medal of Freedom mm-hmm. from President Clinton, and um, they were never able to marry. Uh, when I met her, it was when we were going through all of the the fights for that, and she told the story about things that that didn't that they tried to put in in place but they couldn't because, you know, marriage wasn't available. And she was, she was really fighting for it, not that she was going, you know, because she lost her partner a couple of years before then. And here, time moves forward, you know, 2013, you and Pam O'Shaughnessy are able to go and receive a Medal of Freedom, not only from the president, but from President Barack Obama. I mean, in that moment, what was it like? Well, it was it was thrilling for me mm-hmm. personally. Um, mm-hmm. It was not the kind of thing I ever thought would really happen to me. Um, and I thought it was, you know, it was certainly certainly a well deserved honor for Bayard. And I mm-hmm. thought, you know, it, it was time. I mean, all of the other uh, leaders of the the so-called big six, which were part of the March on Washington. You know, Mr. Mm -hmm. Wilkins, Mr. Randolph, Jim Farmer, uh, John Lewis, Whitney Young, they had all gotten the Medal of Freedom. And Byard, again, was sort of marginalized. He was sort of on the outside, Mm -hmm. even though he was really the person that had made that march happen. Uh, You know, not without help, of course, but, you know, he was the driving force. Um, And this was an opportunity to bring him you know, back into that fold. And, you know, the fact that it happened during that 50th uh, anniversary of the march that same year, I think was, was, was very significant. Um, so, you know, it was, it was certainly thrilling for me, and I think it was obviously a very good thing for, for Bayard's legacy. Um, the other thing about, um, you know, being really being the first of two LGBT partners that day, Tam was actually... The first one because she accepted it for ride and R.I. comes before R.U. and we were all seated <laughs> alphabetically. So we were right next to each other. We were sitting right mm-hmm. next to each other on the platform, but, but she got up there before I did. Um, you know, it was just, it was thrilling, I think, for both of us, really, to have that happen. How long will it be? Because I know it will happen again, but we don't know how long it will be before we see that, you know. 
I mean, it's just like, and and I think that was a, the, another phenomenal thing about that period of time with the Obama White House that it allowed, I mean, so many LGBT people to come forward. I mean, so many of us were able to go to the White House and, mm-hmm. you know, and to be there. And I'll tell you, you know, having been one, <laughs> I mean, there were things that were were not, okay, the first thing that moved me was to be able to go there, and you see pictures where for the longest, um, and here were people who who looked like me, who weren't able to come into the front door, and who were depicted in pictures as serving and and being the wait staff and behind the scene, and then to turn the corner and here's your president who looks like you, but then mm-hmm. there was also there was that part. But then the fact that I was also there, not just because I was black, but because I was gay, and it was like to to have your nation's capital, you know what is like our house, the White House, welcoming and accepting you for you, mm-hmm. your, your identities, you know. And that was just like a moment, yeah. a, 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 a really huge moment. Mm-hmm. It was. And I think um, even though it's, I don't think it's a moment that would happen now, uh, mm-hmm. and there also is, you know, there's their attempts to uh, turn back some of the progress that we've made. The fact that that moment did happen means that, you know, we'll never go back to where we were. It'll never, you know, it may turn back a few steps, but, you know, like in any struggle, you take a few steps forward and every once in a while you take a step back. But we'll never go back to where we were in, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, you know, that kind of place. Uh, The consciousness is just too much out there and people are too aware and people are too educated and enlightened. So I don't think we have to worry about that. But I do think that... um, you know, we we do live in difficult times now and challenging times, and you know, people are finding what finding trying to find various ways to turn back some of the progress that we've made. How you came out really came on my my radar, other than being just like a name in a book, or you know, this was you know his partner was through Robert Shader, and you know, he was telling me that here they start, wanted to form this organization and what they wanted to be true to, and they came to you to basically, in some ways, to get your blessing. Mm-hmm. How did you feel when, you know, I mean, does it often happen? Because, I mean, I know that there's lots of um, individuals, organizations that will take on a name or say that they represent all that but don't come and ask somebody. How did that feel when they came to ask you about that? Well, it you know it was it was a good feeling. I I, I was happy that they did it. I was glad that they did it. Um, so you know it was it was an honor in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So I you know I was happy that they came to me uh, and asked for my blessing, asked you know permission. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but you know, the most important thing to me is that they that they get it, that they under 
understand who Bayard was and what he was committed mm-hmm. to, and that they they want to try and carry on those values and that legacy and and his his example. And uh, from what I've seen of the work that Rob, Robert is doing and has done, um, I feel he's really being true to uh, Bayard's legacy and Bayard's values. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very very positive force in the community. Um, he's a fighter, but he's not yeah. an angry, um, mm-hmm. n- you know, kind of guy. I mean, he, he does what he does, I think, with, you know, the way Byer did, with a lot of love and a lot of joy in his demeanor and in his presence and the work that he does. And that, I think, is something that's uh, very, very much part of who Byard was. And, you know, one of the things, too, that, that is important is, like, even though we've come a long way and even though our kids don't have to face a lot of the challenges that you, I, previous generations have had to, our kids, our queer, LGBTQ kids are still struggling you know, the rates of homelessness, you know, there's bullying. All of these things are still going on. And I believe that this would be an extension of that legacy, you know, because until we overcome that, that work that that you started way far back in the day, that legacy that you're maintaining it, it continues. I mean, there's still need for it. That has to do, that would have been, you know, like you said, you, you talked about how it was like he was so open and to hearing all these other ideals. Our kids are falling through the cracks. Um, mm-hmm. What made you decide to step up and be like a community liaison with this organization? Well, Robert asked me for one thing. <laughs> um, I, you know, it, uh, he wanted me. He wanted me to, to join the board, and I I didn't feel I was really able to do that at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I you know I do live in New York, and you know I'm about an hour or so away from Princeton, and I didn't really feel I could take a very active role in it. I, I had been down to the center. I was down there on Bard's birthday, and we showed uh, the documentary Brother Outsider, and had a very mm-hmm. uh, good discussion and Q and A following the you know following the screening. Um, so he asked me if I could be, I guess, a community liaison, which is more of, you know, kind of an advisory consulting kind of role. Um, he's going to be doing a uh, a reading, a kind of a stage reading of a play called Blueprints for Freedom, an, old, an ode to Bayard Rustin, which is uh-huh. written by a man named Michael Benjamin Washington. And he's joined uh, with the McCarter Theater of Princeton, I guess it's Princeton University's McCarter Theater, um, to put on this reading uh, early next month. Um, So again, you know, that's a way of uh, getting Bard's name out there and, you know, doing it in a way that might bring people in that may not have known who he was, you know, doing Mm -hmm. it through a theatrical production. Um, you know, somebody might not want to come and see the documentary film or go to a lecture about Byard, but they might be interested in going to a theatrical event. And so, it'll, you know, you can be uh, opening up, a, possibly opening up a new audience um, to, you know, to Byard's message. 
So, you know, Robert seems to be very, uh, very proactive, uh, and I think he's doing mm-hmm. a lot of very positive work, again, especially with young people in the community. Uh, you know, not just not just the LGBT kids, but, you know, a lot of kids, uh, you know, being a teenager is it's a difficult time. So it's, uh, it's not just about, um, it's you know, you're struggling to find your, your way, your your values, your ideas, your own path. And so I think he, he has an atmosphere where people can come in and, you know, be who they are and be accepted and, you know, talk about that if they want to talk about it or if they don't want to talk about it, they don't have to. But just, you know, having a feeling of safety and security and acceptance, I think, is really what uh, what all young people need. Yeah, you know, um, at one of our our universities here, um, generally during Black History Month, um, there's this one teacher who always shows Brother Outsider. And there's a couple of us who rotate going in, you know, to talk about, you know, LGBTQ rights, what's happening. And it's interesting how each year there are people, young people, who Many are just coming out. Uh, some of them are involved or very committed to social justice who have never seen it. I mean, it's like, we didn't know this man existed. I mean, even to, we have one who um, talked about the film that talked about the, uh, the march and, uh, and Selma, and they were saying, like, you know what? I've seen a lot of films. How come they don't mention this this man, he was so involved. He was doing all this. His history is so great. And it, and it never ceases to amaze me that even now, I mean, and I will even say like last year I was part of the rotation and that here were A, people who were hungry to know this history, who did not know who, what this film was about, who just sort of, some of them showed up because it was a sign for their class, and then afterwards wanted to know more. Mm-hmm. And it, it sort of shows, so if you don't know your history, okay, first of all, often the same thing can happen again, but then how inspiring it is. So, you know, I hear what you're saying about another way of doing it, but it's sort of like, you know what? There's still this audience out there who are going to show up and who are going to benefit whether they're assigned it from the class or they just, you know, are are finding their way or they're into social justice who need to hear his history, his message, and these values. Well, we're going to take our second break, and then I want to catch up with you. And we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now. And listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. 
Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here in our final segment on collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm talking with Walter Nagel. Walter, I know you went back to school. Um, You got your degree. You've gone on and you're doing a lot of things, but what is on your horizon? What What is life for you? Well, I'm somebody that I, I have a lot of interests. I've been a, mm-hmm. a fairly, I would say, fairly advanced amateur photographer for many years. I, have a, I do have a lot of pictures of Bayard, and I kind of need to organize a lot of that stuff um, and make decisions about what, what to do with it. Uh, I, have, I have a certain amount of Bayard's papers still in my possession, Mm-hmm. And I need to find a home for some of those. Uh, some of them will be going to the Library of Congress, but then there are other things that they may not be interested in. So, you know, I have to work a certain amount of time uh, going through things and, and deciding where to, where to place what. Um, I'm gonna, I do want to do some writing, uh, some more writing about Bayard. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, one, of the, uh, one of the areas that doesn't get covered so much in the biographies is that that later period really that time that I was with him because mm-hmm. Bayard was a man of so many accomplishments that by the time they get around to that last 10 year period they already have a big a big book and the publishers telling him to cut it and edit and do that kind of thing and so you know that last period uh, you know sort of gets truncated into one chapter and i think there's certain stories that um that I could tell, and uh, some of the people who were still alive who accompanied Byron on some of his travels, uh, you know, could also t- talk about those. And uh, I think it it's sort of taking Byron back to that place where he really started when he was when he was quite young. You know, we think of him, we tend to think of him as an African American leader, which he was, and we tend to associate him very much with the African American struggle. Um, but he was always somebody that said, you know, he would have gotten involved in the struggle even if he were white, simply because mm-hmm. it was the right it was the right thing to do. And it just so happened that the that the struggle really took off during the time that he was kind of at his his peak in terms of his energy and his youth. So he he was really committed and involved 24/7. But before that happened, he he was involved in the anti-colonial work in Africa, working in Nigeria and and Ghana. Uh, he was uh, involved uh, over in India in the freedom struggle over there. Uh, you know, he was somebody who was interested in human rights, not just civil rights in this country. And later on, during the time that I knew him, he was getting more involved in those issues again. Uh, refugee affairs, immigrant rights, uh, promotion of democracy in different parts of the world, and some of the travels that I took with him to places like... Uh, Grenada, South Africa, mm-hmm. El Salvador, um, you know, we relate more to that that view and, and, and those struggles. And I think, uh, you know, I could probably add some 
some stuff to the literature that hasn't uh, hasn't already been told. So I'd like to you know spend some time working on that. How do you determine who gets what? You know, you said the Library of Congress will get some papers. How do you determine who gets what of this? I mean, I'm I'm sure you have a a house full of of things. How do you do that? How do you make that decision? I mean, and and you know, is it just by your gutter, or what do you hear telling you? Well, this belongs here, so that people will know. Well, you know, Bayard Bayard left his what what they call his papers to the Library of Congress. He felt that they should be down there because that's where Mr. Randolph's papers were and are, mm-hmm. uh, and they work so closely together. Uh, in their activism that he felt, you know, they should be housed in the same institution. Um, so there, you know, a lot of the stuff is already there, but I have some more things that need to go there. But then there's a lot of duplicate material. Um, I have a, a collection of uh, audio tapes and things that, that I made of him uh, being interviewed that I need to sort of catalog and um, get put into digital format. Uh, Things like that, and, and there's a, a lot of, I guess you could say, memorabilia or, or paper, you know, paper, uh, memorabilia, posters, uh, flyers, things like that, uh, from the movement. Again, a lot of those would probably go to the LOC, but there are other organizations um, mm-hmm. that you know might want to have copies of those things or display them. I know Robert is very interested in having a copy of the. Life magazine cover where Bayard appears, you know, the week after the march. He and Mr. Randolph appeared on the cover of Life. So I'd like to get a copy of that down to them. So it's more, you know, it's more a matter of figuring out the right place for certain things. And and I think it's also important to me that these things really be accessible to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I just assumed they really didn't fall into the hands of a private collection or something that was going to keep people out but you know it would be nice if if scholars and and you know almost anybody who uh has the time and the interest and the patience to go through things should you know should have access to them Mm -hmm. i mean from the african-american community have you been approached by any you know like things like the dusab in chicago Detroit has an African American Museum, or even the Schomburg Library. Have any of those approached you as far as having some of this? I mean, this is not. This is also not only a part of civil rights history. It's part of. This is a black man that people, other black people, should know about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there is some material at the Schomburg already. I know mm-hmm. that uh, they haven't approached me, at least recently. Um, but I know that they have a certain amount of stuff in their collection already that either they uh, got from other people that knew Byard or uh, worked with him or just, you know, because of the organizations and campaigns. You know, there were a lot of campaigns uh, that Byard was involved with. He may not have directed them, but he was he was a, a pretty important figure, especially locally in, in the New York City area. So I know they have some mm-hmm. of that material. Uh there are a couple of um i don't i have to be careful here about how much i say but i mm-hmm. i would li- uh, i would like to see an exhibit possibly of 
about Bayard that would present kind of present him in his full in his fullness, if you will. Mm-hmm. Bayard was, uh, uh, you know, uh, quite an art collector. He had a very nice collection of uh, European religious art, uh, African artifacts, African art, uh, some Asian pieces. You know, he he had a, a rather diverse collection, and you know, a certain amount of the collection really reflected his philosophy and um, his values. And it would. I, it would, I would be happy to see an exhibit where some of those actual things were exhibited in conjunction with documents and um, papers from the movement, uh, mm-hmm. the things that he wrote. I mean, he wrote the, he wrote the um, founding papers for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Uh, you know, he wrote... Uh, there were a couple of drafts and a couple of versions of what eventually became the, the March on Washington uh, manual, if you will, or the uh, call to the March on Washington. You know, Bard had drafted a couple of versions of that. Um, it would be good to have some of these things displayed with with other parts of his collection because I think, you know, there's a direct relationship. There's a relationship between his Quakerism and his his uh, belief in uh, nonviolence and Christianity to those documents and to the way he expressed himself in those documents. So it would give people a, a fuller picture of who he was. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to see that I mean, happen. Mm-hmm. And I can just imagine that the discussions that would come from that, you know, I mean, just some of the things that you mentioned there, I could see like discussions that you want to have about that, you know, um, even like from your perspective, having grown up like Catholic, and then how Christianity has taken on a whole, whole nother spin in some ways, and then with the values of like pacifism, of human rights, civil rights social justice. I mean, you can see these, these great conversations that would come from seeing papers, seeing things about him, you know, getting a sense of time and place. But what I'd really love to be, like, when you write that book, I've got first copy, because I think that the perspective that you would bring, the conversations that you have, and we know how you look at things when you're 20 is different than how you look at things when you're 50. So the conversation that you would have had with him as he looked back with and came to a place to where, from where you were and being younger and to where he was and seeing it through that lens. I worked Mm -hmm. with um, Grace Lee Boggs who died at, she was like a hundred when she died, but some Mm -hmm. of the young people who had an opportunity to work with her between their 80s and 90s, when she was in her 80s and 90s, talked about how there were ways that she would listen to what they had to say and ask just questions just or a statement that would change the way that they thought or their answer that also affected what she had to say. And I can just imagine what some of your conversations were like in to read that book, to read, you know, conversations that you've had with people. I mean, do you ever talk to people like John Lewis and all those who, who worked with him? Oh, I do. 
I do. I don't, not mm-hmm. not not with John so much, but um, mm-hmm. with other. You know, there are a few people uh, alive that were you know worked very closely with him for a number of years, um, mm-hmm. and you know we're we're in fairly regular touch. I mean, that would be you know just to sort of hear that and from what you knew, what they told you. I mean, I, I'm just you know I'm envisioning your book and I'm loving it already. <laughs> you know, I am definitely loving it already. Well, Walter, I want to thank you for taking the time. You are an amazing person. Uh, And the fact that what I love is like, you know, you are still lifting him up. You are still, but not like that's all you've got. You know, that's all I've got. You You are this full person. You were on this path, and your paths intersected for for some wonderful years, and now you're continuing that path. And I thank you for keeping that legacy alive and doing that work. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And I intend to get, I I keep telling Rob, I'm going to get there to Princeton, and I'm hoping that we can arrange it at a time where we can all sit down and, and share some tea, laugh, talk, and vision. Sure, that would be great. I'd be happy to have you on, on this coast. Thank you for your work. Thank you for all you've done, and thank you for sharing those memories. Well, thank you, and uh, yeah, let me know if you're coming this way. Um, you can see there's a wonderful plaque in front of the building where we lived that was dedicated to Bard last year, just about a year ago at the end of June last year. So um, you could come down and have a picture taken in front of the plaque or something, and we could have coffee. So by all means, let me know. I want to thank today's guest, civil rights activist Walter Nagel. Nagel is executive director of the Bayard Rustin Fund, which commemorates Rustin's life, values, and legacy. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.